If you would, please open up your Bibles to Esther, uh, fifth chapter of Esther. The staff has been preaching through this book, and uh, this is my first opportunity to get a, uh, a chapter in Esther, and I'm excited to have this one and, and next week as well, and I look forward to spending time uh, studying this book and, and preaching to you all. But we'll be in the fifth chapter uh, this week, and I'd like to read it and then ask the Lord to bless us as we come to his word. Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther... Standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of, my, of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me, Come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast." And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is instructive, and your word is true and good. We pray that you might reveal to us deep truths, and that you might once again point us back to the grace of Jesus Christ, that we may live in light of your sovereign goodness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many descriptions that we could give when we're speaking about this book. On one hand, it's a book that's 
filled with irony. And you've already seen many of the ironic passages and parts of this book, and we'll see many more. It's a surprising book, and in that sense, it's also somewhat of a funny book. That's because it highlights God's absolute power and his wit. That is, he can overcome evildoers, and he can reverse evil plans, and he can turn back evil purposes, even back on the heads of those who perpetrate it. It's a funny book. It's an ironic book. It's also something of a dastardly book. It's one that shows us the great depths of sin and how destructive and how wicked individuals can become in their sin. It's also, you might say, an inspiring book. Because it's a book that shows us how God can use very, very unlikely people. For example, a cowardly Jewish queen. A nobody like Mordecai, an unimportant Jewish man, or even a group of God's people who over the years have become very complacent and perhaps a bit too comfortable in their pagan world. Yes, God can even use people like that. That is God's power. He can grip individuals. He can rouse them from their slumber. He can redirect them back to himself and empower them to bold action. And all of these elements can be found here in this chapter. We see all of those descriptions at play, even in this fifth chapter. And we particularly see them described in two characters. We see them described in Esther and in Haman. And, and that will really serve as my outline for uh, this sermon. The first point that we have, the first thing to see is God's changing power in Esther. That is, his changing power. And then secondly, we see sin's corrupting power over Haman. Well, let's start first with Esther, and we see God's changing power in Queen Esther. Chapter 4 was a very significant chapter in this book. It was something of a turning point. That is, all throughout this book, we've seen Esther providentially blessed. She's become the queen by the, the Lord's working, and yet she hasn't been a very faithful queen. She has been cowardly, you might say. She has lacked courage. We saw just last chapter that she was unwilling to stand even when the people of God were threatened. Not only did she lack courage, but she's lacked faith. She was unwilling even to identify with the people of God. She was unwilling to rely upon the God of the Jewish people. She also lacked wisdom. She was convinced that by her position, she would escape any harm. That even though Haman had set up a, a dastardly plot to destroy all of the Jewish people, she presumed she would make it out okay. She lacked wisdom. And yet in chapter 4, we see something of a new Esther. We see God rousing her from her deep sleep. That is, she began to see the threat. She realized the, the great need that was before her. And she realized that she must begin to rely upon God. And so in the last chapter, she called for a fast. She called on the people of God to begin a process of repentance and to cry out to the Lord and to pray to the Lord. 
Evidently, Mordecai's preaching in chapter 4 had made an indelible effect upon her. Chapter 4, there's, there's a very significant verse, and it's verse 14, and I'll just read it. This is what Mordecai said to her. He said, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews, for the Jews, from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And evidently she took this message to heart because we see this new Esther who is submitted to God. Now she knows that God by his sovereign work will indeed protect his people. And she even began to understand that God could use and would use someone like her. I think this is the moment where Esther begins to put the pieces together and to, to know exactly why it is that she was made a queen in the first place. That is, even before there was a threat against God's people, God had already been working. He had been setting the pieces in place to protect his people, and now she is realizing the greatness of God's sovereign purpose. Here is a new Esther one who's gripped by God's purposes, who's strengthened by his power, changed by his grace. Well, how do we see this throughout chapter 5, this, this changed Esther? Well, we see it in several ways. First, notice her reliance upon prayer. The first verse begins, on the third day, it says. And that, of course, is a reference to the amount of time that Esther had instructed the people of God to pray for. That is because the people of God knew at this time that waiting on the Lord was paramount. It's so incredible to think that there's a great danger. There's an imminent threat. There is destruction right around the corner. And yet, what do the people of God do? They stop. And they pray, even for three whole days, they knew that they could not solve this problem without the Lord. And so they waited for him in dependency upon him. They needed him. And one of the things I find so interesting about this book is how it characterizes wicked people. Have you noticed that in this book, all the wicked people make very rash, quick, hasty decisions? Right? Think about in chapter 1, for example, when the king is upset with his, his queen Vashti. And he gets upset with her one time, and his immediate response is to banish her. And then we see another hasty decision with Haman. He gets upset with Mordecai after one incident, and his response is to determine to kill him and all of the Jewish people with him. Or consider even when Haman goes to the king and says, there's this people who are rowdy and they are unlawful. And the king has heard about them only this one time. And immediately he says, well, why don't you just have all the authority to go and do as you please to those people? That describes wicked people. They act on impulse. They act on pure emotion. They don't wait. But not so with the people of God. The people of God rather slow down. The people of God wait upon him. They take time and they insist on walking by prayer. That's the first way we've seen God change Esther. But the second way we see 
is Esther's bravery. And it's interesting because recall just a chapter ago, Esther really wasn't too worried about anyone else, was she? She wasn't worried about the people of God. She was just worried about herself. And now in this chapter, it begins with her walking into the lion's den. And it is a lion's den. She is coming uninvited before the king of Persia. And to do so can mean death. The penalty for coming uninvited, unsummoned, is to be put to death if the king does not delight in you. If the king does not want to see you, or should you not be worthy in his eyes. It's not a safe option, but it's the only option. I think there's an interesting parallel happening here. Recall that Vashti, in the beginning of the book, Queen Vashti, is killed, or banished, that is, when she comes, excuse me, when she does not come, even though she is summoned. Now you have a very similar situation in reverse. Esther is risking her life to come before the king, even though she has not been called. This is very dangerous. There's a real threat here, as we've already seen from Esther's, Esther's words in chapter 4. And so why does she do this? What would prompt this self-sacrifice, this newfound bravery? And the answer that the scriptures give us is that it's love that can explain the bravery of God's people. It's a newfound love for God and for his people. It's love that leads to self-sacrifice. And we're seeing exactly this. Jesus said this in John 15. He said that greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Esther is doing. She is, in essence, laying down her life. She's got a newfound bravery. And then the final way we see her changed by God's power is in her wisdom. And here we'll focus mainly on verses 3 through 8. Let me briefly describe the scene. She comes in before the king. Uh, She risks her life, and, and there's... There's a tense scene here, you might say, that at any moment she could be killed, and yet that doesn't happen by the Lord's providence. Instead, she wins the favor of the king. She comes in, and the king sees her, and I like to think that he he sees her and instantly has affection for her. She wins his heart. She wins him over. And he goes on to make a generous offer to the queen. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. What a a generous offer. That's the king's way of saying, ask me for anything. I'm ready to open up the pocketbook. I'm ready to give you your heart's desire. And, And reading this, I think many of us imagine that this is it. This is the moment. Esther has won the day. Now is the time to make the request. The king is being generous after all. But I think we need to slow down. He's being generous, but he's not being that generous. Because consider what it would mean for the the king to take away the edict that he has given Haman permission to make. It would mean the king admitting he was a foolish person. Admitting that he made a mistake, that is something that King Ahasuerus is not likely to do. 
And so what she does is she shows great patience here, and she plays on the king's affection. Look at what she says in verse 4. She says, if it please the king, then let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And here it might seem a little unclear what Esther is doing, but she's actually showing a great deal of wisdom. Really, she's speaking the king's language, isn't she? If we know anything about the king, he loves to feast. He loves to eat. He loves to drink and to be merry and to have a good time. And she is speaking his love language. She is buttering him up. She knows the king so well. And the wisdom of Esther pays off. We see that almost immediately. The king takes notice and immediately says, well, get Haman. We need to go to the feast. My queen has prepared a feast for me and Haman. And you can even tell that over time, the king is becoming more interested in what Esther is going to ask him. For example, in verse 6, the king asks again, what is your wish? And he, he uses even more words. He really wants to know what Esther has to, to say. He says in verse 6, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. He's become very curious at this point, hasn't he? He wants to give her something great. And Esther doesn't even stop there. She plays this tactic even further. She once again says to the king, come yet again for another whole day of feasting. Let's, let's just slow down. Put the request on hold. Let's, let's, in a sense, relax. Let's have some fun. One more night of eating and laughing and drinking. And then the king will absolutely be in her hands. And, of course, the king loves this. She's building all sorts of suspense, isn't she? Haman and, and the king are wondering, what in the world could she be desiring? What, what wonderful thing is she going to ask for? I wonder. It's going to be a good day. They're excited. Really, what Esther is doing is she's showing tremendous wisdom here. But I wanted to ask this question. Where did all of these qualities come from? We've seen up till this point that Esther has been immature, she's been unfaithful, she's been cowardly, and now in chapter 5 she is brave and she is wise and she is faithful to the Lord. I think the answer is quite simple, and it's exactly the one that the Lord wants us to see. This is God's power. This is the work of God working in a person. That is, he is the one who changes us by his power. He is the one who makes us fit for every task that he calls his people. And this isn't just true for Esther. It's true for all of God's people. I'm going to ask you tonight, how is God changing you? How is the Lord making you wise for your daily tasks? How is the Lord granting you great boldness to live and to act and to speak in the name of the King of, of glory? How is God changing you? Well, those changes are not just for you. No, God changes us so that he can use us. 
He changes us into holy instruments so that he can wield us and use us for his kingdom and his purposes. So tonight, people of God, be encouraged. Take courage. God can and will use his people, even weak ones like Esther and you and me. And do you know why he does this? He does it so that he will be glorified. He uses weak people so that his name will be the great one. That's why he does it. But the second point I want us to see tonight has to do with Haman. And it's sin's corrupting power over Haman. We've seen that Haman is is in some ways set as a picture, counter to Esther, counter to God's grace in Esther's life. Here is Haman, and he is a prime example of unchecked evil. He is selfish, and he is wicked and and violent, and, and boy, is he immensely arrogant, isn't he? And really, I think Haman is a reminder to us of the great danger of sin. That is, sin is destructive. It's malignant. It's something that grows and that it festers and it multiplies. And ultimately, what it produces is spiritually dead, deformed, violent, destructive people like Haman. I think one of the things I always think of is, as I'm reading through this book is, how in the world can someone be so violent as Haman? And the answer is pure and simple. It is the reality of sin. How do we see this in Haman's uh, actions here? Well, the first thing we see is Haman's arrogance. Uh, Notice what's going on in in verse 9. He's just come from the feast, and it says this, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. In other words, today was a great day for Haman, wasn't it? He has been in the company of royalty. He is on the top of the world. The king loves him. The queen seems to trust him. Everything is going so well until he sees Mordecai standing in the court of the king. Look at verse 9. It says, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. That is, his very presence throws Haman into a sense of wrath. The very sight of Haman, excuse me, Mordecai, makes his blood boil. He can't stand even seeing him. Well, why? Because Mordecai doesn't respect him, does he? Mordecai does not give honor to Haman. Mordecai does not show any respect to him. He doesn't tremble and bow down and offer gifts and offer service to Haman the way everybody else does. And it shows us something about Haman. And he is not satisfied with some praise. No, he has to have everybody praise him, whether out of love or fear. He wants everybody to acknowledge him. He wants everybody to see him as important, as the big shot, as wise and as valuable. And that is arrogance. And it's something that God warns his people against. Uh, Consider Romans 13, verse 3. Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. 
but to think with sober judgment. Dear people of God, are, are you considering yourself rightly? Are you considering yourself in light of your sin, in light of your weakness, in light of the glory of God? Are we considering ourselves rightly, or have we become inflated with our own sense of ourselves? Or consider 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Uh, Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, God would have his people be humble, but sin would distort us and make us arrogant. Next thing we see is Haman's selfishness and his, his uh, ferocious greed all throughout this text. Look with me at verse 10. It says, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Now, I should say one thing about Haman's friends here, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick on Haman just a little bit. I think he can take it. When it says that he invites his friends, don't be confused here. Uh, in the next chapter, they're going to be called another word. They're going to be called wise men. And that's really a technical word for counselors or servants. That is to say, Haman doesn't really have what you and I might call true friends that come around him. No, he's really got henchmen. He's really got servants. He's got a posse, you might say, that stands around him and, and, and builds him up and strokes his ego. And we see him uh, doing exactly this in verses 11 through 12. It says, And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me Come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Here is a man who is obsessed with himself. He gathers his servants, his wise men, his friends, and his family, and what does he talk about? Well, he talks about himself, and he talks about his wealth, and, and, and his power, and his status, and his greatness. I like to think uh, Haman is something of a story topper. I don't know if you've ever been to a dinner party and encountered a story topper before, right? You are telling a, a, an exciting story to a bunch of friends, and the other person has a better story. You're talking about uh, a promotion you got at work, and they got a bigger promotion. And you're talking uh, and telling a funny joke, and what do you know? They have a funnier joke. And you've caught a fish this big, and they've caught a fish this big. And it always seems to end up ending with that person and their achievements and what they have done. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's bragging of his wealth and his many sons and his status. And you know what's ironic? By the end of this book, every single one of those things will be stripped away from him. By the end of this book... Haman's sons will be dead. By the end, the Lord will have taken his wealth and given it to Esther. The Lord will take his status and his position, and he will give it to his most hated enemy, Mordecai. It's a grim reminder to us 
that we should not trust in the things in this world. We should not boast in earthly things. The Lord can take them, and he can take them like that. And notice something else about what Haman is talking about. He's not just talking about the earthly blessings themselves, but notice what really matters to Haman. It's having more than others. Did you notice that? It's not just having wealth. It's I have more wealth than others. It's not just that I have a great status. It's that I'm higher than all of the other servants. Or notice how he talks about the feast. I was the only one invited. Do you get the picture? I'm better. I have more than the next guy. I have, I'm further along in my pursuits. This is what matters to Haman. And that is really exhausting lifestyle. That's an ultimately joyless pursuit, to be constantly obsessed with having more and more and more. And you know what? We actually see that in the text. Look at verse 13. He's bragging about everything he has. And and then he says this in verse 13, and perhaps it surprises us. He says, yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I have all of these blessings. He's got everything. And yet nothing matters to him. Nothing satisfies him. He's reduced to misery by one single man who will not tremble before him. Nothing is enough for Haman. And that's the nature of greed. You see, the greedy person is constantly in search for something new and something better. They're really consuming. But at the end of the day, they are the ones who get consumed who get left empty and unsatisfied and frustrated, just as Haman is so frustrated. And God warns us of this sin as well, the sin of greed. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says to put to death what is earthly in you. And he, he names several sins, and among them he says covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is is jealousy, it's, it's greediness, it's desire, consuming desire for more. And here Paul says, to be greedy is to be an idolater. And to be an idolater is to be unhappy. Because we're ever in search of something worthy of worship. We're ever in search of something to replace the Lord himself with. And that's simply never going to happen. This is an agonizing, exhausting way of life. But finally, we see Haman's sin in his destructive deeds. Look with me at the final verse in verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, 50 cubits high, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully to the feast with the king. And this idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. The solution is really, really simple. Just kill him. Just build a gallows and have him put to death. Don't wait for the decree to come. We all know Mordecai is going to die eventually, so just kill him tomorrow. Get it done with, then all of your problems will be gone. And, and I love how the plan matches Haman's ego in such a brilliant way. He doesn't just need a gallows. He needs a massive, big, 
imposing gallows. This would be a 75-foot-tall gallows, just so he can take one man and stick him on the top so everybody knows, don't get in the way of Haman. It's a gallows as big as his ego. And, and once Mordecai is dead, then Haman will be happy. It's twisted thinking, isn't it? It's almost disturbing at some level, and yet this is sin's destructive power. It has warped Haman, and now it's going to be destructive to others. And I think it shows us that sin is so much like fire. That is, it is something that rages, something that builds and spreads. And oftentimes we, we think we can manage it, and yet it becomes uncontrollable. It begins small, but eventually can become overwhelming. And one application for tonight would simply be to ask ourselves, are we afraid of sin? And I hope that we are. I could be a little bit more particular and ask, are we afraid of our own sin? Are we afraid of the sins that lurk deep within our hearts? The sins of, of greed, the sins of, of arrogance and selfishness and even violent thoughts. These things aren't just evil or wrong as we see in Haman. These things are destructive. I think overall Haman is a, a picture of a man with unchecked sin. He's someone who's far away from the grace of God. There's nothing to limit him. There's nothing to control him. And I think what's most frightening of all is he is exactly what we would be apart from the grace of God. He is precisely what we would be if the sins of our heart were let free from God's common and wonderful grace. So how should we consider this text? How do we apply it? I, I, I confess I thought long and hard this week, boy, how do I apply this text? And what dawned on me again and again is, is this simple truth. We should run from sin. We should run from our own sin. We should run straight to the gospel of Jesus Christ because only he can deal with a fire of raging sin that lies within each one of us. Only he can extinguish that sin. Only he can change us. Only he can give us new hearts and can change us by his grace. He's the only one who can do it. He's the only one powerful enough to justify us and to sanctify us. Here, I think... This passage really glorifies God, doesn't it? Because it reminds us that he is the one who takes a sinner and turns them into a saint. We've seen that in this text with, with Esther. You know, a lot of people will say that the book of Esther is all about reversals. We shouldn't miss this reversal, though. This one might be the most powerful and important one of all. That God is the one who takes a sinner and turns them into a saint. He's the one who takes weak people and uses them for his glory. He's the one who takes a person bound for hell and gives them heaven. He turns sin to righteousness. He turns death to life. That's the power of God. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will we give him thanks tonight? All thanks be to God who in Christ alone changes us by his power and even uses us for his glory. I trust that that's the desire of our heart tonight, to go to the God of grace, 
to have him change us and, yes, even use us. Let us pray.